Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. We have now have, as shown here, 13 pieces of the puzzle. We're getting close to completion. Uh, we've the key elements in this puzzle. Uh, one of them is referred to as the backbone, the covenants of the Bible. The kingdoms, that's the way God used to unite and govern his people. And priesthood, that is the way his people have reached up to him. And as we've discussed and as we know, Jesus is the very heart of this plan. We talked last week about all of the things that are new uh, in the kingdom, in the Christian age. And so I want to continue and make some application of those things. You may have thought that some of our past lessons were kind of general theological stuff, but uh, I hope you will feel that today's lesson is much more pointed and it's much, much more personally applicable, I think, to each of us. So the first question I ask myself in thinking of this, so we have all these new things, so what? What does that have to do with me? What does it mean? Well, I think it means we have to think about where we fit in God's big picture, where we fit in that plan. And uh, in order to do that, uh, there are some things that I think we should consider and give some thought to as how God put together his grand plan. The first thing that God <clears throat> tells us that I want us to think about, 1 Corinthians twelve eighteen. But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he is pleased. It's an interesting phrase there, just as he pleased. This is the way God wanted it. This assembly is the way that God wants it. And so I think it is important for us to give thought to the idea that this is something we cannot ignore. We cannot ignore how God wants things to be done. What place does he have in mind for us? And in order to think about that, I think we need to look back at the very beginning of things uh, to kind of get the uh, get our thinking uh, headed down a pathway that I think makes some sense. In Genesis chapter 1, at verse 27 and 28, God said these things. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Did you notice some things in this that God wants his people to do? Uh, this 
the ideas that are presented here are commonly referred to as, as the cultural mandate. That's in contrast to our mandate, which, which I would say is a spiritual mandate, the Great Commission. I, I think he's saying two important things in this. First of all, multiply and fill the earth. In other words, procreate. But I don't think it's suggesting at all just procreate for the, for the sake of doing so. He's talking about producing productive human beings, people that were not only born in the image of man, but people who will become in the image of God, truly. The second thing he says there, subdue it and rule over it. And the language used there suggests the idea that there's force necessary and there's a resistance on the part of the earth uh, to man having that position, that role. But at any rate, suggests that man was not saying to God, well, it's okay, you just laze around in the shade and everything will be fine. But to subdue the earth doesn't mean that man has a license to do just whatever he wants with the earth. In Genesis 2, at verse 15, God further says this, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. Now this also tells about how that work should be conducted. And there's some important caveats there. That word that's translated tend in our English language really carries with it the idea of working or serving. And the word that's used there to keep it really carries with it the idea of guarding. So mankind had a responsibility to take proper care, to work, to do things that serve God. And he also had a responsibility as guardian of God's earth. This is an image, maybe you can make it out, of an Indian chief, Crazy Horse. And it's being chiseled out of a mountain in Wyoming. Uh, God also is using his plan, his word, to chisel us, if you will, so that every one of us becomes his image. Now back in lesson two in this series, we talked about how we were created in the image of God and God's purpose for us is to praise his glory, Ephesians chapter one. And the life that we live dedicated to Christ is so that we can in the resurrection become the very image of God. Uh, and we do that by becoming the image of Christ who's the very express image of God. We're also to glorify him. And the question is, how do we glorify God? Uh, how do we find our place in God's picture? Well, I'd like to suggest some things, and not surprisingly, they're based on those three things we've already talked about, covenants, kingdoms, and priesthoods. First of all, my place in the covenant is to serve God. In Hebrews chapter 9, at verses 
14 and 15. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. It gives us two reasons here as to why we should serve him. The first one is because his blood has cleansed us. And the second is that he's the mediator. He is our mediator between we as an unholy people and his father, the holy God of heaven. So we should be willing to serve the one who rescued us, the one who is the holiest of all. But a part of serving is making sacrifice. We've made reference before, and I want to make reference again to Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now that word reasonable as used in most translations at any rate means or suggests the idea of being rational of being careful how you think about it think it through thoroughly I think it's telling us that it is logical to serve God to be thinking people I think we will conclude that worshiping Serving God is appropriate. It's logical. Think about all the things that God is, all that he does, and all he's done. And I think we have to arrive at the conclusion that it is reasonable to serve him, to worship him. And in this, there are three points I'd like to suggest about this reasonable or rational service. First of all, I don't think we should make very, a very strong distinction between our secular and our sacred or our spiritual lives for this reason. Colossians 3.17 tells us, and whatever you do in word or do, deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And there's a similar statement in 1 Corinthians 1031, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Second thing to notice is that whatever we do, we need to be aware we're always in the presence of God. Our work, our sacrifice is in the very presence of God, and we need to behave and think and act accordingly. And the third thing I'd suggest is that we need to make a constant conscientious effort to glorify God in all the things that we do. That's the purpose he gave us. It is logical, it's reasonable for us to do so, and it is a part of becoming the image of God. Another thing that's described for us is our place in the kingdom. The Bible suggests to us that we need to be a new person, as we've discussed already. Be a new person, or as in John 3, being born again, new creation, and other verses we've found. 
another passage says that we're no longer aliens, but we have become new citizens. So we are to be a new person, a new citizen. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 8 through 11, reading the entire passage, Colossians 3, beginning verse 8. And now you yourselves are, are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. So now I'm a new person, a new citizen in a new kingdom, and it's the kingdom of Christ. We chose to be there. We didn't fall into it. It didn't happen to us by birth. And now we need to think about the place that we find to serve in that kingdom. What will our citizenship be like? Will will we be a citizen who's no longer angry, hating, proud, wanting what I want? Will we rather be a citizen who exhibits the fruit of the Spirit? Familiar passage to us, Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I would suggest that our place in the kingdom that God has ordained for us, the place where we can be and should be model citizens, uh, is to bear the fruit, to be the kind of citizen that he wants us to be. Again, that is how we will become the image of God. The next thing that uh, to consider, uh, and this is the passage that I referenced in Galatians 5, is our place in the priesthood. And I believe the scripture is telling us that we're to proclaim the gospel, Christ, the Father, publicly. We are a priesthood, a royal priesthood. And in order to be a priest, we need to proclaim the praises of God. According to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim, shown in red there, and it doesn't show up well at all, Eh, faint, proclaiming the praises of him who called you out of darkness into into his marvelous light. The word praise that's used in this passage is not the usual word for praise in the New Testament. It's a word really that carries more the idea of virtue. We are to proclaim the virtue of Jesus Christ. It means we we declare his his uncommon, his his excellent character. Uh, That character that that is so worthy uh, of us declaring 
to others. And in the process of doing that, we are glorifying God. That, again, that's the purpose for which we've been created. We're to proclaim publicly and to glorify Him. We offer a sacrifice, as we've mentioned before. And a sacrifice is not something that you and I give up. A sacrifice is not about me, but it should be about God. Sacrifice is something that we give to God, not something that we give up or deny ourselves. But First Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 is speaking of public proclamation. And the reason I say that is the root of the word to proclaim there has the idea included in it of publishing. And as Brother James Andrews and Peggy knows, publishing means that you reveal it, you make it public. So we are to publicly proclaim the virtues of Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? He gave us this command, let your light so shine before men. There's no hiding it under a bushel as the children sing. We are to proclaim the virtues of Jesus Christ. The Great Commission, just as God told Adam and Eve to multiply and to fill the earth, he's given us this spiritual mandate, the Great Commission. And very much like the hands that are depicted here, it is in our hands. Matthew 28, beginning of verse 18. And Jesus came and spake to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Make disciples. In other words, multiply Christians. And in case we've overlooked it, this is the one word in that passage that is a direct command from Jesus Christ. It says to go. And that word is a participle, which really means carries, or carries better the idea of while you're going, uh, preach the gospel, make disciples. Baptizing them. Of course, we know what baptism is. It's immersion for the forgiveness of sins. And it goes on and says, teaching them to observe all things that Christ commanded. That's uh, a heavy responsibility. But uh, it's a responsibility we have to, first of all, teach. And then secondly, to further teach so that those people who become Christians can grow. We don't, we don't abandon our babies to feed themselves, to take care of themselves, and so on. At the same time, we do not abandon newborn Christians to fend for themselves on their own. To the end of the age, well, the meaning of that is obvious. Until Jesus comes again, we're to be about God's business of spreading the gospel. Again, it is in our hands. And Jesus Christ doesn't have any other hands in this world. It's our hands. Well, there are other things involved, I think, in making disciples. 
And I want to suggest some of those to us to think about. Uh, Making disciples is the one verb of action that's used in this passage. So what do we do? How do we go about doing that? I'd like to suggest three things that begin with the word, the letter D rather, perhaps to make it just a little bit easier. First of all, teach new Christians to depend on God. Uh, Not on their teacher, not on their mentor, not on the preacher, the elders. Teach them to depend on God. Jesus is our king. We should teach so that people will depend on Christ. If we teach people to depend on some person on us, uh, we're creating for them a false god. And we know that's wrong. We should ourselves model dependence on God. When they look at us, they should see a person who is totally dependent on God and it's reflected in their study life and in their prayer life. We need to teach them to be different. Disciple is different from culture, different from the world in every way. We're different in what we do. We do the right thing. We're different in what we don't do. We don't do evil, and we're not lukewarm. We're different in how we answer tough questions. It's with the truth in love. We're different in the cost that we're willing to pay for our Christianity. Jesus told us to count the cost, and uh, we should hopefully do that, not only when we become Christians, but throughout our lives as Christians. But we're different also in life relationships with culture, with money, with other people, and we're different in our uh, view of the afterlife. The gospel is not an offer of after-death fire insurance. It's a call to serve. It's a call to serve rather than be served. It's a call to seek the reward that is the reward in the afterlife, not the reward of this world. Another thing we should teach people is to be determined. First of all, it is a necessity to show determination uh, in our Christian living because we're faced with a lot of uh, problems, challenges in this world. And remember, it's a long-term process. It took Jesus three years to teach his apostles, and even when he was getting ready to return to heaven. They were still quarreling among one another and trying to figure out what things were all about. And it took the help of the Holy Spirit, actually, to guide them and help them figure out some of the things that they needed to do. Making disciples can be discouraging work, and we need to be aware of that. And, of course, Jesus uh, faced that in the quarreling and bickering among his disciples disciples uh, as the kingdom was coming near and actually he lost one of them of course to the devil we need to teach our parents fathers mothers they need to teach their children to be 
to be different, to be determined. Uh, and the question is for all of us who are parents, grandparents, who have any influence on children, uh, are we determined to make them disciples, disciples of Jesus Christ? Acts chapter 2 gives us, I think, an outline of some things that we further need to consider about being disciples, about finding our place of service in the kingdom. Uh, And the uh, sermon that Peter preached, he said in Acts chapter 2 at verse 42, it says, it speaks of the church, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking bread and in prayers. And I'd like to break that down uh, just a bit. The word continued steadfastly there is a compound word that has two different aspects. One of them, one of them is being diligent, and the other is adhering very closely to what you're going about to do, being diligent in what you're doing. Or we might say in our own vernacular, keep on keeping on. But first of all, what were they diligent to do? They were diligent to follow the apostles' doctrine or their teaching. Uh, they paid close attention to what the apostles had to say, and of course they had the aid of the Holy Spirit, but we do too as well uh, in our Christian lives. They were also diligent in fellowship. And if you study that word in the New Testament in some depth, you'll find out that fellowship's not having a nice meal with one another although that's a bit of it. It really is much, much deeper than that. It's a total sharing of everything that it means to be a Christian in worship and life. And I think it can be said, and it has been by some, that no one can be saved without the church, without fellowship, without the sharing of the gospel, without sharing our praise of God, the blessings, the prayers, the trials, and even the physical blessings, such as food and, yeah, even money. I would suggest, unless we're willing to share all those things and do so, we're not in full fellowship in the sense that it's used in the New Testament. We're in Christ's body, and we're here to help one another get to heaven. And strong fellowship is an absolute necessity uh, if we're going to achieve that together. He also urged them to continue steadfastly in the breaking of bread, the communion, which we have blessed, been blessed to be a part of here this morning. The communion draws us back to the cross, uh, and it is, shows us an overwhelming kind of love that we perhaps never or rarely see Uh, in our lives. And the cross is the very essence of the gospel, as we note from 1 Corinthians. It again takes us back to the time of Jesus' suffering and death, and it shows us not not just an undying love, but it shows us a love that was willing to die. And Jesus' 
followed the Father's will all the way to the cross. And he shows us the true cost of discipleship. And we need to teach that and we need to practice that uh, in our lives. And they continued steadfastly in prayer. Prayer, is, as we know, is a source of strength. It's something that we can do on behalf of one another as a part of our own fellowship together in the church. These folks were constantly devoted to prayer. Now, we have all kinds of challenges. We've heard of some of those here today in our brother Dale. Uh, and prayer is a great resource for all of us to help us deal with the challenges that, uh, that we're contending with. In doing these things, the church in Acts 2 was blessed. They grew very rapidly. And if we follow some of these principles in our own life, I think we'll grow personally. And I think if we show those to other people, the church will grow numerically. There's one final thing I'd like to share about the Great Commission. Just like the symbol for infinity, uh, there are no limits to the Great Commission. Or if there are any, they're very few and very limited. Notice the wording of the Great Commission. Jesus said he had all authority. Well, that, that pretty much includes it all, I think. But he has not only desire, but the power, the ability, the authority to make things happen, to bless us as we go about sharing the Great Commission. It is to be to all nations. Well, who is that? I'd say that's anybody beyond the end of our nose. Uh, again, that's pretty inclusive. Observe all I've commanded you. What do we teach our children? What do we share in our Bible classes? I think we teach them the things that are commanded in God's Word. Uh, these are the things that Jesus has commanded on how to become a disciple, how to live as a disciple, and how to grow as a disciple. I am always with you, or I'm with you all of the days. Uh, Christ accompanies us. He is the source of strength that we, uh, that is necessary for us to survive, to live as Christians. Whether we believe that or not, it is the truth. It is something that's very clearly taught in the Bible. Romans chapter 8, verse 38 is a familiar passage to us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, principalities, and powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's with us all the days. And this same commission that Jesus gave us is the same one that he placed in our hands. He gave it to us so that we could 
as individuals and as a body of Christians grow to be, to become his image, the image of God that has in, that is God's intention in his plan that he created for us and, bless, and has blessed us with. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.